Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Tactical Sciences Coordination Network podcast. Uh, this is an exciting project where we bring together projects that address tactical issues in agriculture, biosecurity, pest management, plant and animal diseases, and, and how we manage them, the tactics that we use. Today, I'll be speaking with the directors of the Regional Integrated Pest Management Centers. And uh, in the course of the next uh, several several minutes, we're gonna figure out a little bit about what integrated pest management is and how the centers help us execute uh, their mission to protect agriculture in the United States. So I wanna welcome you all here. Uh, we've got with us uh, Lene Jess from the North Central IPM Center, Deb Grantham from the Northeast IPM Center, Matt Bauer from the Western IPM Center and Joe LaForest from the Southern IPM Center. So uh, again, welcome to all of you. Uh, glad to have you with us. Um, so let me just throw it out there. Our audience may not really have a, a good understanding of what some of our tactical sciences are. So integrated pest management, what the heck is that? Uh, can somebody flesh that out for me? Yeah, I'll be happy to do that, Marty. Uh, so integrated pest management is a science-based process that we use to address pest problems in a variety of different situations. Um, it has the defining features that it is that it attempts to be the most effective and economical way of addressing these problems while also minimizing the risks to people and the environment. Uh, in short, I guess if you were going to summarize it, we like to think of it as smart, sensible, and sustainable pest control that can be used in all pest situations. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when I look at IPM. It seems to be the foundation, whether we realize it or not, the things that we're doing in, in integrated pest management are the foundation for how we manage pests in a lot of different places. It's a balanced approach. People that do organics, um, may not even recognize that what they're doing is really the foundations and has its foundations in, in integrated pest management. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Marty. We, we do try and strike a balance and that's, you know, that, that critical balance that we always try and work with between the benefits of a particular um, program and, and some of the costs associated with that program, both economical and health related. Seems like it's really all about moderation in all things, right? Yep. So, so do you think that the public really understands what integrated pest management is? How do we get that message out? So Marty, there was a, a group, uh, Frameworks Institute that recently, and they're currently still working on um, a study and they were doing a partnership with a farming and food narrative project, which a lot of our centers funded for a year or two. And they looked at, does the public understand what IPM is? They went out and asked them a lot of questions and they found that they don't understand what IPM is or integrated pest management is. So I think what we try to do as centers is we try to put it in the context of where people come from. So if we're talking to them, um, let's just say they're a homeowner and they say, well, I don't understand what IPM is. And we may say, okay, do you live in an area where like there's mosquitoes? So Use it in that context. Do you look at where do the mosquitoes breed in your area and try to get rid of those breeding grounds? Do you ever use um, sprays to control the mosquitoes on you or your, your family, that type of thing? And they're like, oh, that's IPM. I'm looking where they're coming from. How can I control them? That type of thing. What are the best methods to control? 
So we use IPM in a lot of different areas, but a lot of people don't understand what integrated pest management is. So it sounds to me a little bit like much of what you do through the centers is uh, education, um, uh, communications about um, outcomes in research and extension programs and things like that. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a really important major part of what we do. And I would say that it's not just communication out, it's not just information out. We get uh, feedback from our stakeholders and our constituents. And then we, we try to uh, send that information to the right places to help policy makers and practitioners. There's a lot of information that a local person can provide about how a technique may or may not work for them in their situation, um, what, what kind of barriers there are to adopting integrated pest management. So I think it goes both ways. And I think that's extremely important to keep in mind. I think if people don't understand what it is, they feel threatened by it. So uh, that education is a really important thing. So you each come from different regions around the country. I'm kind of curious um, what your regions are and you know, the states that are involved and, and what are the defining characteristics of, of each of your regions. So Lene, you're in the North Central. Um, what, makes a, what makes a North Central state for you and what's, what's, what's unique about them? How are, they, how are they alike as well? So for the North Central region, um, we are based off the USDA regions. So um, we have the same there, but so our region comes, starts at North Dakota on the western side, down to Kansas. And then we go across Missouri and then Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and then up to Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana, Illinois, in between um, Minnesota. So it's those 12 states that are kind of boundaried by those states. Um, we have a big area of field crops, so corn and soybeans, but we also have um, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota have a lot of specialty crops. In fact, Michigan is usually ranked third in the country for the number of different crops that we have behind Florida and California. So we have a lot of different things that we cover. Um, we also, all of us as centers, don't just cover agriculture. We cover other things such as horticultural crops, nursery crops, but then also work with other groups such as school groups. Um, we work with urban agriculture. We work with pollinators. So we work in a lot of different areas, but that's what the North Central covers. So it's not just food, it's, it's, uh, it's other areas where pests are involved. Correct. So Deb, you're integrated in the Northeast. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lene, what was that? Well, as we said, integrated pest management covers a lot of areas, not just growing crops, so. Yeah, okay. So Deb, you're in the Northeast. That's, that's a really diverse area because you've got very agricultural areas and you've got big cities as well. Of course, so does the North Central with Chicago sitting right there, but um, big population center, uh, maybe some smaller farms up there, but you know, so what's, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the Northeast and how IPM fits up there. Yeah, the agriculture in the Northeast is very diverse. And, you know, dairy, field crops, veg crops, a lot of nurseries and greenhouses, and that's increasing uh, with climate change, actually. Um, I consider aquatic invasive species to be part of our 
purview. And that's been a little bit of a sell. I can talk more about that if you want, but we are one thing to, to think about with all, I think with all of our uh, regions is that um, we have in the Northeast, we have the tri-state area, the New York city, New Jersey area. There's a, a lot, a lot of things come in through that, including invasive species. There's, you know, Baltimore is, also one of those places in Boston, and then the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway. So we are not only getting them in, but then they leave New York via the Great Lakes in some cases, and it's something we try not to allow, but it does. So it's very diverse, both in its um, the situations that pest management is needed and in the, the pathways that pests move. So when you talk about invasive species, especially those aquatic species, that's, that's something we may not often think about, but across the regions, we're dealing with, uh, with invasive weeds, like uh, invasive aquatic weeds, like Eurasian water milfoil. We're dealing with zebra mussels. Are there other kinds of things that we have to be concerned about or we should be thinking about with regard to those aquatic invasive species? Well, there are there are um, fishes that are non-native that actually um, outperform some of the native fish. There are a lot of aquatic weeds um, that are moving. So hydrilla is an example. I think that it was first seen in Florida and it's just overgrown Florida waterways, but it's moved on boats all the way up to, well, it's in New York and we're here in the um, Cayuga Lake watershed. We have it in Cayuga Lake and are, have been battling it fiercely for some years. Um, when it leaves Cayuga Lake, it gets into the canal system and then into directly into the Great Lakes. And so we have a lot of partners worrying about what's gonna happen next. So it's a multi, multi-jurisdictional issue, any invasive species. Yeah, you know, when I, when I think about the invasive species and, and uh, it reminds me of having encountered uh, uh, woolly hemlock adelgid, and that kind of gets into Joe's area in that with coming from a forest entomology background. And uh, curious, Joe, tell us a little bit about the South and, and what's unique. And you know, that, that woolly hemlock adelgid kind of spans from the Southern region up into the Northeast. A uh, pretty big range. It does. and even taps into a bit of the North Central as North Central gets Ohio. Um, the South, we're, we're everything from Texas and Oklahoma over to Arkansas, Kentucky, Virginia, and then down through Florida. Plus, we pick up the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Um, I think one of the most unique things about the South is there are large sections of the South that never get cold enough or some of the insects and diseases to be killed off during winter. Um, I've been in South Georgia now for 13 years and I haven't seen snow in eight. And I can tell you the cockroaches are just happy outside right now in the, in, in the weather we have here that up in Michigan, they don't have to worry about that so much. The cold does a good job of keeping them at bay. So that creates a whole bunch of issues for structural pests, ants, cockroaches, other things that would invade homes, schools and businesses, restaurants. Um, 
but then we do have in the south a whole lot of other issues in agriculture your row crop if you're wearing a pair of blue jeans it's where your cotton came from um, if you want fresh vegetables we've got tomato cucumber onions everything grown year-round down here so the season never really stops for us in the south and it certainly provides some interesting challenges now, I spoke of the diversity in the Northeast, but uh, West Texas is pretty different from the Virgin Islands. Quite a bit, quite a bit. It means we have to do a whole lot of reaching out to partners in all the states and try to get them all um, to learn from each other's successes and learn from their failures so they don't try something that necessarily didn't work in one area and another. And if there's resources that someone's come up with, how can we make sure the information gets out to other groups that could use the same stuff? And Matt, you're probably every bit as diverse uh, or maybe more diverse without ever having to leave California. And then you throw in that you've got some other states in there that are very different from California. So you know, tell us a little bit about, uh, about the Western states. Well, you're absolutely right, Marty. We cover uh, 17 states and the Pacific Island territories. As a matter of fact, when you think about the West, it covers everything from the tropical sort of ranges all the way up to Arctic. I think we cover seven time zones and the international dateline, so it's, you know, it's a pretty big area. Um, you know, the West is really characterized by a number of things that, um, you know, they are there in other state in other regions, but, um, you know, we're certainly um, sort of a hotbed for specialty crops. And so some of our states like Oregon growing hazelnuts are one of the few or only states in the union that um, that are busy producing some of those crops. In addition, as the, you know, recent any recent uh, search through the news will tell you, um, you know, we are suffering from severe wildfires as a result of some of the invasive species, not obviously aquatic invasive species, but uh, some of the grass, grassland invasive species, cheek grass, medusa head, goat grass, that have really started to uh, make life here in the West uh, pretty challenging for folks in Washington and Colorado and California. Um, so, so we've got our challenges cut out for us and, and we're working to try and address most of those. That's interesting. I'm not sure I've ever heard the story that uh, invasive grasses are contributing to the wildfire, wildfire risk. Um, yeah, that's, that's a that's a new angle to me. Uh, that's pretty well established in the literature. There's a couple of articles by folks in California, Joe G. Francesco and others uh, in the scientific literature that have gone pretty far down the road of establishing that connection. Um, we're also seeing invasion of uh, these grasses into a variety of different um, ecotype, um, you know, um, uh, ecological systems. For instance, buffalo grass invading the southern Sonora Desert, which is contributing to an increase in fire likelihood. Uh, the you know uh, the desert ecosystems are not particularly well adapted to uh, fire, and so any any fires there can be significant as well as invasions into a lot of our forestry systems as well by some of these invasives, um, which is tending to switch those over from forest from forest uh, habitats into more grass grassland habitats. So I suppose that changes the understory, which creates a bigger fire, a hotter fire that puts the trees into greater danger. Huh? Yep, that's precisely correct. Okay. So... <laughs> Agriculture looks really different across the country and in each of, your, each of your regions. And you mentioned some other things that you do that are beyond agriculture. Lenny, I think you mentioned school IPM. Um, I think there have been some programs with IPM in housing. 
Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about those. Uh, so what, what in the world is school IPM and, and what's the advantage of, of having IPM in our schools? So school IPM is basically working um, with everybody in the school, but there, there's a lot of educators who are working with janitorial staff, uh, the pest management professional that comes into the schools. But it's been shown uh, through lots of research that cockroaches can lead to asthma or flare-ups of asthma in, in school children or in, in children in general, but even in schools, along with mice, uh, rodents, anything like that. So there's a big push to get into those schools and work with everybody there about, and it goes from the classroom all the way to, like I said, the janitors. So having the teachers not have food open in the rooms where it might attract cockroaches and mice. Um, how do you clean underneath all the stuff in the kitchen to keep grease out so you don't have as many cockroaches? Where do the janitors store their mops? And then they even go outside and look at the building where the cracks in the building that pests might be coming into to weeds out on the playground and on playing fields like football fields, soccer fields, that type of thing. So it covers a wide area and there's quite a few people around the country that are currently working in that. So, so really school IPM is about finding ways to use alternative methods so you're not completely dependent on spraying pesticides all over and, uh, and perhaps enhancing the, the instance, instances when you do choose to use an insecticide to manage those, those uh, pests. Correct. You said it well. Thank you. And oh, geez. I, I'm a good listener. <laughs> it, it goes beyond that, too a lot of what they've been focusing on is the prevention of the pests. That if they install door sweeps or they make sure they have the proper distance of the dumpsters from the buildings, they don't have the pest problems to start with. Mm -hmm. So when you have limited school budgets and you're trying to run the operations and everything else, plus keep pests out of the schools, it, it starts making a lot of economic sense requiring less manpower and less materials if you've taken care of it before it even became a problem to start. That's a great lesson that prevention is, uh, is a way to reduce your management costs, your control costs later. So it you know, creates an integrated system, right? So I, I guess, Deb, that when you're looking at, at housing IPM, it's, it's a similar thing where we're, we're looking at, at uh, uh, potential pressure from pests in, in, in housing and uh, some of the same principles apply that of school IPM in, in housing structures, whether that's uh, large housing structures or even small uh, independent uh, single family dwellings. Yes, the, the um, for, you know, IPM in housing is especially in um, affordable housing, which are usually large, well, apartment buildings of varying sizes, but some are quite large, or apartment complexes. Um, I think the people factor is probably more evident there than in, say, agriculture. It's that's kind of an overstatement, but it's it's very difficult to do the management of pests in a large apartment building with lots of different apartments with people living in them who do things a little bit differently. Um, the, the volume of things like garbage and um, the way the building has wear and tear and how much people are going in and out and propping doors open and, and um, proximity to other sources like restaurants, um, 
it's it's very complicated and it's very dependent on um, getting people to accept the work of keeping of exclusion of pests, which is what Lene and Joe were just talking about, and then also um, making the the environment unfavorable for pests. You know, so you have to get people to report um, pest infestations in their apartments, and that can carry stigma with it. And so it's tough to get people sometimes to talk about bed bugs, that they think they have bed bugs in their home. Um, there's, uh, if, if it's in one apartment, then where, how did it travel to the other apartments? And you have to look at ventilation and ductwork and pipes moving through the walls and, and uh, lots of things like that, that are, that are really, really complicated. Not that an outdoor setting is complicated, but it seems to me that the people factor is a lot is is a lot more immediate in affordable housing, and the health impacts are high also. With the well, certainly, in, certainly in multifamily dwellings where you have to get coordination from one unit to the next, I've got to believe that that's a huge challenge to try and get people working together, so that they're they're helping out their neighbors as well as themselves. Um, it's got to be got to be tough to to pull that off. Um, so tell me a little bit about the uh, the programs that uh, that you do through your centers. Um, I think you've got something you call signature programs, and I'm sure that you've got coordination in other ways as well. Who, who's first here? I'm just going to call on somebody. Hey, Lene, why don't you tell me about the the North Central? Then we'll go to Matt after that. Okay. So yeah, signature programs are things that we're required to look at when we um, apply for our grants for the centers. But, um, basically, we work with our advisory and steering committees to look at what programs are important for our region that we want to work on and, and our grants are four-year grants, so during that granting period. So for instance, um, and then we have this last, this round that we're in currently, all of the centers said we should at least have one, if not more of these signature programs that we're all working on so we can work on something nationally. So that one signature program is invasive species. As we were talking about earlier, all four regions have invasive species of one kind or another. And sometimes it's an invasive species that starts in one region, but travels and moves somehow to all the other regions. So um, we work a lot with that together and each of us does a little bit something different in those. In the North Central region, we create what we call pest alerts. They're a one sheet, so two-sided um, document on a new invasive species when it comes out, just talks basically about biology, how to identify it, that type of thing. Um, Joe in the Southern region helps with some of the databasing and, and each of us, like I said, has a little bit of, of what we can do with that mapping, that type of thing. Um, and then the signature programs, the other three that we have for our region are pollinators and monarchs. Um, we have one on pest resistance management and then one on advanced genetic tools and IPM. So some of those are kind of things that we've been working on for a while, but are important. And some of them are new things that we're looking at to see how we might be able to work on them in the future. Matt, what about in the West? What kinds of things do you try and focus on out there? Well, so just like Lene just mentioned, you know, we all work on invasive species and we just recently uh, developed a, a pest alert uh, for the, uh, let's see, I think we're not supposed to call them murder hornets anymore. We call them Asian giant uh, uh, 
hornets, I think, right? Anyway, murder hornet, I think, is what most people recognize. And, and so we worked with the North Central uh, region to produce that pest alert for that for that particular invasive species. But, you know, we also work on a variety of other things that um, signature programs that, that are important to the West. One of the things that we always talk about, and I think Deb mentioned this um, earlier in, in the broadcast, um, is the idea of measuring, you know, are we really achieving the things that we are trying to achieve? Are we really hitting on those things that are important not only to uh, the USDA and NIFA, but also to our states and to our local communities? So, so we have one of our signature programs called the Crop Pest Losses Assessment Program, which really works on making sure that uh, those programs in the West can evaluate their impacts and, and document those and, and produce those so that we can let our legislators and also our, our local governments know, as well as stakeholders know, that, that we're having an impact, that we're making a difference. Uh, we also have a signature program on risk communication. That's a relatively recent one. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've noticed in the West is that we seem to have a bit of a lack of toxicological expertise in the training of IPM practitioners here in the West. And so that makes it kind of tough when you're trying to explain to somebody the whole concept of risk and how it affects them when you don't really understand it all that well yourself. So so we're busy working on trying to make sure that everybody can talk about risk in, in an in an educated and, and an influential way and, and produce out, you know, handouts and things for folks so that they can understand them as well. And then finally, one of the things that um, we do a lot of in the West, and that is um, provide input to uh, the Environmental Protection Agency when they're making regulatory decisions. You know, it's, uh, you know, Washington's a long way away from Hawaii, so it's sometimes difficult for folks in the, you know, at the national level at, at, at headquarters there in Washington, D.C. to understand some of the on-the-ground realities that folks are facing here in the West. And so we make a, a concerted effort here in the West to make sure that um, the, that agency has all the information it needs to, uh, to make regulatory decisions that make sense for us for folks here in the West. And so that's that's our fourth signature program, which we call network coordination. So that's that's our four. So I guess so I guess EPA cares about IPM. Yes, sir, it sure does. Well, you know, there's a lot of synergy and overlap between the goals of EPA and, and integrated pest management. You know, certainly in, uh, EPA is interested in safe and sustainable uh, pest management, and so are we. So you, you said something earlier, Matt, that I need you to unpack for me. Toxicological expertise. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. I understand you, that. You win the award for longest word uh, on this podcast. Well, thank you. Um, so toxicology is an area of science where we actually look at the, the effects of certain compounds on health and health outcomes. Um, uh, those can usually those are usually you know uh, human health outcomes, but they can also be environmental health as well as health of, of, of some indicator species, and it has to do with looking at um, you know things like risk, like how how toxic is something, how likely is it that it's going to create a problem for you, um, and then you know how can you meet you know how can you mitigate the exposure, like how can you make sure you don't get exposed to too much or make sure that whatever it is, that it doesn't get you at a too high a level. So, um, you know, that used to be something that was commonly taught in, I think, in most agricultural programs at most land-grant universities in the 
in in the United States. Um, that seems to be waning a bit. We don't seem to have as many people trained up in toxicology, at least in terms of agriculture, as we used to. So, so that that seems to be a place where we need to you know focus a little bit. It's good that we have the opportunity to gain some some uh, backup on that through the IPM centers. Then, so at least in, in the coordination of people that do that kind of work. So, Joe, uh, what about the South? What do we see down there? What what are your kind of what's your emphasis across the region? Your diverse region. So we've spread it out pretty evenly. We've got um, some some unique programs in for underserved audiences. That in the southern region, there's a lot of 1890 institutions, um, and those institutions, for some of the federal grants, necessarily aren't as compatible. Com, um, competitive as we'd like to see. They're serving a different audience and we've been reaching out to them to try to help them with some of their grant writing skills, help them get into some of the programs and make sure we have good materials that are going out to inform those underserved audiences on IPM. And some and so of those, those, 18, those 1890 institutions that you talk about are the historically black colleges of, and universities of agriculture that were established in the 1890 uh, Morrill Act or the second Morrill Act. Correct, correct. And they tend to serve different clientele than some of our other partners we work with and just making sure they have the resources needed to fully uh, uh, get educational materials and tools that will work for those audiences. Um, some of the groups they work with tend to be small farmers and what you might see in some of the larger ag operations wouldn't quite work for them. And so it's focusing on their needs. Um, we also have signature program like North Central on pollinators, um, looking more at pollinator protection in the South, that with all of the activities going on for pest management, some of those could affect pollinators. So how do we mitigate those impacts and promote pollinators so we can have them for where they're needed in our, our operations? Um, we then have three signature programs that kind of work together, um, invasive species, resistance management, and technology. Every region plays to its strengths. And in the Southern region, we've had two groups at NC State, North Carolina State, and University of Georgia, who are partners in the center, that are very heavy into technological resources to get information out to the people that need it when they need it. And so we've taken an approach of making sure any tools that have been created for knowing where pests are and what the pests are doing and what people should do about it are widely distributed so people know they exist. And if they were created under a grant, how do we make sure they don't go away when that grant ends? With that, it's brought a bunch of technologies for if someone sees something, they can say something. They can report seeing an invasive species and have someone follow up on that. Or they could report having an issue where they suspect they might have resistance developing in a field. What they've been doing in the past hasn't been working. So they want to raise that to someone's attention so they could come out and help and our extension service can take action to help find a solution to their problems. So we've got a lot of tools around rapid reporting of all these topics and how do we use that to let people know what's going on in, in near real time. Very good. So, 
So, Deb, there must be something unique that you've got going on up, up in the Northeast as well. Uh, we have a, a set of <clears throat> signature programs that, you know, overlap with the other centers. Um, they, and we have had a strong emphasis on invasive species for the last several years. Um, in, in particular, we've had um, the spotted lanternfly issue going on in the mid-Atlantic and part of the Northeast. We funded a working group in 2018 and that built into a large collaboration that got a large USDA NEFA specialty crops research initiative award. So we're about a year into that four year award. Um, it's a fairly high profile invasive insect that is um, having high impact on great, the grape industry and on other soft fruit. And I think I read, I think I read something about that. It was first found in Pennsylvania and it's spread all over the place now, just recently, uh, last thing that I had read. It's spread very far, yes. Um, there are quarantines in a number of states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, you're gonna tax my memory here. Um, we're starting to, we have some external quarantine in New York state, which means there are certain restrictions on coming into the state. Thing, trucks and so on have to be inspected for the egg masses. They um, are prolific insects and their egg masses are really hard to find. Um, and they'll lay egg masses on anything, cars, trucks, trains, rocks, trees. And Sounds a little bit like the gypsy moth uh, program. Yes, so it's a, it's a project that really involves um, not just the researchers at several land grants and other universities, but also state agencies, state agricultural agencies and environmental agencies and um, different USDA agencies as well. So it's a very interesting and complicated um, project that is around trying to somehow contain this one insect and figure out the biology and its enemies and how to how to fight it so it's a and, and it's it's a pest to the general public it's it's just overwhelming when they start flying and moving in the summer and so we get we the northeastern ipm center end up fielding a lot of questions and so do the other collaborators on this project, fielding a lot of questions from the general public and trying to figure out how do we talk to them about this and get them to not spray alcohol on their house or torch their front porch, you know. Yeah, that sounds like a bad idea to burn down your front porch to try and control an insect, yeah. It's fairly extreme, yes. <laughs> so it, it's, it's um, one of the invasive uh, species that we're really working on. We've we've been involved in several. Uh, the brown marmorated stink bug one was also uh, a big issue all across the country. And there's a national collaboration that receives USDA funding. Um, we originally funded the working group that um, I think that was in 2010 that resulted in two rounds of funding from USDA. Um, still still current and still looking for additional funding. It's very active, strong group and, and national um, has impacts in, I think all of the 
definitely all all of our regions in one way or another. So, and then probably the program that is most um, that that's more unique to us is the uh, affordable housing IPM in affordable housing, which is a has a separate funding stream from housing and urban development. And we look at um, we do lots of Susanna Reese manages that, and there are trainers across the country that she works with, and they do training um, with housing housing authority staff and some residents and it's it's a pretty demanding and pretty uh active program i got a little bit ahead of you on that one when i asked you a question about it because i thought i had seen that that was one of your uh, one of your areas of emphasis and and something that you know is uh, is really important in your region with uh, uh with the population the population centers the density of population in some of your cities so uh uh, another way that that IPM can benefit our society. Well, and I will add that it Susanna works not just with the large housing authorities. She's worked with New York City Housing Authority, which is the largest housing authority in the country. But she also works with very small tribal housing authorities all across the West. And there are um, several, and she works with the school IPM group. And there's several uh, the state IPM programs that work pretty closely with her, especially um, in the Southwest. So that's a great segue. So you mentioned the state IPM programs, and I heard Joe mention earlier about coordinating with extension. So I, it sounds like there's a close connection between the IPM centers and, and extension in the state. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how you interact with those groups. Well, we have we have a good close relationship with um, extension in our region, and I think everybody does. There are um, state IPM coordinators at every land grant. I think at every land grant, um, and and then others who do a lot of work in IPM and extension. So we have some formal relationships with all of those coordinators, but we also um, work very closely with them on different programs, sometimes with funding, um, sometimes with hosting some of their events and their um, materials and so on. So it's it's important because they're the boots on the ground with the individuals who need to know about and adopt IPM. We, Matt, it sounds, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you weren't done yet. Deb, I'll let you finish. I was going to say we can't do it without them. Yeah, so so it sounds, Matt, like there's a lot of coordination that occurs through the through the centers to try and help sure help make sure that people can work together and come to better outcomes uh, than they might by by themselves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Marty. I think you know Deb hit on a couple of concrete examples uh, when she was speaking just a moment ago. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely essential for us to deal with some of these bigger bigger pest management issues that cross state lines. 
you know, the state IPM coordinators are absolutely outstanding in what they do. They address the stakeholders in their states, the needs that those stakeholders have in pest management. But you know, some of those uh, some of those pest management issues start to cross across the state boundaries, and um, then they become problems for multiple states. And it can be very challenging sometimes for for the state IPM coordinators who have state responsibilities and are, are beholden to those to those stakeholders in the state to start working in, you know, um, working on projects that might have more than one state involvement. We see that, for instance, in the Treasure Valley area between Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Uh, you know, there are some significant problems there, but you're basically crossing across three states. And so, you know, it's important for the centers to be able to pull together teams, work groups, uh, um, to try and address some of those more regional problems. And, you know, these are oftentimes problems that don't really rise to the level of national interest. You know, these are not things that USDA is going to send a lot of resources to try and deal with through APHIS and a variety of other agencies. Um, so, so they really wind up being bigger than a state, but not quite national. And, and that's where we fill in the gap. So, um, sounds very challenging. You do this with not very much for staffing. Um, you rely a lot on, on goodwill and people that want to cooperate with one another. Um, if you had a bigger budget, what would you like to do? What's your dream on the impact that your centers might be able to have beyond what you, what you do right now? I'll jump you in. Gotta, I think you gotta we, have a dream. Everybody's got a dream. I think one of the things that we've dreamt since the centers kind of came into being in the year 2000 is just being able to get more of what is IPM out to general public, out to people, anybody who uses IPM. And it's always hard, as we talked about earlier, people don't always understand what it is. Um, I think we've made big inroads. I think all four of our regions, like Matt was saying, we've do um, provide funding for working groups. Um, that's one of the big things that the North Central IPM Center has funded. And the great thing about those is it cuts across universities, there's governmental agencies, there's nonprofits, um, there's consultants, there's growers, there's about anybody you can think of. We have a TIC IPM working group that has legislative people on it. There's public health people. We have over 199 different affiliations that are on our different working groups. So it's not just university people that we're working with, they're just IPM coordinators. So I think that would be a dream of ours is if we had more funding that we could increase the amount of money that we provide to those types of programs. And we'd all, also, we all of us provide funding for researchers to work on things, especially kind of critical issues or emerging pests. So we have a little bit of flexibility that we can also, if there's an emergency issue, like Deb was saying with a spotted lanternfly, that we can quickly put together a group to work on that get kind of that base data that they need to then apply for those huge um, NIFA USDA grants that where they can get more money and even pull more people in. But what I really love about the regional IPM centers is we're not just in our region because that our working groups cover 43 different states. We have six provinces from Canada and two other international countries that are involved in those working groups. And then the same thing happens in the other regions. So we don't stop at a regional line we're all working together and trying to do what's best and kind of it's that collaboration that takes place in those types of meetings, the networking. And it's also helps a lot with not having that duplication of effort. 
So why does every state have to do this? We can get together a bunch of us and do it, or we can spread it across the country. So I think if we had more funding, we'd be able to do more of that. And we, our outreach would be a lot better and our impact would be better. We would have more money to maybe do that evaluation at the end to see what those impacts have been. And it's really hard to, uh, hard to justify what you're doing unless you can show that it really did what you were trying to do. Um, uh, we, under, we underestimate the value of evaluation as we, uh, as we look at these programs and consider research and extension programs that we might be doing. Well, um, it's been great to talk to all of you today. This is a pretty cool program that we've got with the IPM centers and the way they facilitate IPM around the country. Uh, implementation of those tactics that, uh, that we lean on to build the strategies that IPM is, is, has its foundation in. So uh, I want to thank you, Lene Jess and Deb Grantham and uh, Joe Forrest and Matt Bauer for joining me today. I'm Marty Draper, uh, and uh, we'll look forward to having another podcast down the road here. And we're going to pick up on those IPM programs in the state that, you, uh, that many of you make reference to today and talk to them a little bit more uh, on a later podcast. So thank you all again for joining us, and I uh, look forward to, uh, to working with you in the future.